1: This week on Hangar Talk, a deep dive into what causes
0: night flying accidents. And the
1: FAA responds to mental health concerns with some changes.
0: Technum puts an airplane on ice. The reason is maybe not so surprising.
1: However, Cubcrafters engineers ducted fans on an airfoil. Cool.
0: And finally, David, the FAA reauthorization bill, it's been introduced in the House. We'll go over all the
1: provisions. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. 1056, turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, contact With mm-hmm. your hosts, mm-hmm. Ian Twombly mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. David mm-hmm. Tulis. Mm-hmm. This is Hangar Talk.
0: Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly.
1: I'm David Tulis.
0: David, the guest this week, we have two, actually. It's Stephanie Lamar and Jared Miller. They are the head of the Freedom Aviation Network, and this is a an up-and-coming humanitarian organization that uh, Lily Guile found for us. And she interviews Stephanie and Jared. And we find out why they got into this business, what it is the Freedom Aviation Network does, and how you can get involved. And I really, this, this organization spoke to me because they do something that I've never heard before in GA, and that is transport victims of human trafficking.
1: Yeah, Ian, it's an interesting use of GA as we'll find out more. And also, I think it's a real cool story how these two met. But let's save that until they tell us in the next segment.
0: Okay, cool. So first the news. We want to talk about the AOPA Air Safety Institute's new analysis of night flying accidents. This is over the past five years and we were just geeking out about this before we came on. They did one of these about flight training a few years ago. Now this one about night flying and it's fascinating.
1: Yeah, it is. And, you know, some of the major causes of accidents are what you would expect. There are some surprises here. And as we delved further into it, Ian, you noted several types of uh, accidents are very fatal during nighttime flight conditions, whereas some are not. Some are accidents, but uh, don't usually have a, a fatal outcome. So I thought it was really interesting, too. And there's a lot of data to disseminate, and it's a fascinating report.
0: Yeah, it really is. So as as I think i might expect, it's night flying accidents. They actually, they can be a little more dangerous, right? The fatality rate, I think, is a little bit higher. The most common occurrence, not surprisingly, because this is what we see in all accidents now, is loss of control. Big, loss uh, of control,
1: right? Yeah, focus yeah. area. We for see that area. at daytime and nighttime, yep. absolutely.
0: Yep, that's right. The second leading cause actually is power plant failure. And this one surprises me a little bit because you remember practicing engine outs at night. Right. Boy, it does not leave you with a very good sense of that, that, that you're going to come out of this okay because obviously you can't see very well what's down there or what you're going to land on. So there, over the past five years, there were 47 accidents involving engine failures, but only six of those fatal. So that, that was actually a really surprising number for me.
1: Yeah, And were there any other surprises uh, in that report? You know, there are some things, well, of course, there is a category unknown, and that yeah. has, yeah, right, that kind of covers a lot of ground. But, you know, it was surprising to me that when you're looking at the loss of control, mm-hmm. that was, as you said, mostly fatal accidents yeah. versus non fatals. But on the other side of the coin, when you're looking at, say, a fuel incident, mm-hmm. most of those accidents were non fatal. Yep. You know, 40 logged accidents that were non fatal and nine that were fatal.
0: Yep. Yep. Which is, again, surprising, just like the engine failures. The one thing that I just think is so sobering though is unintentional flight into IMC. And of course, Yeah,
1: you and I both were talking about that before the show. Yes.
0: Yep, we know that's always dangerous. Um at night it is boy, it's bad. So out of twenty-nine total accidents over the last five years at night with unintentional IMC, only five of those were non-fatals. So said another way. 24 out of 29 were fatal accidents. That is That's very sober. Amazing.
1: Well, you know, it makes sense, though, Ian. It does make sense because, and I know you've flown at night um, as well because you're, you know, CFII. When I've flown at night a little bit, and I remember back in the day when I had my air coupe and I was on the coast of Florida, mm-hmm. near the area Carabell, which is a you know kind of a unimproved area, mm-hmm. you really couldn't tell where the shore stopped and the ocean began, yeah. where civilization stopped, where the sky started, and that was on a full moon night. Yeah, even. which
0: is as good as it gets.
1: Yeah, yeah, I was taken off out of um, at a Jacksonville airport, I remember, and going back towards Carabelle in the Apalachicola, mm-hmm. and um, I was on the artificial horizon just as soon as yeah. I took off. It was amazing.
0: Yeah, I taught my first CFI job was actually out of a grass strip in kind of a it was west of Gainesville, Florida, in a small area, not a lot of houses. And boy, I remember we did the night flight, and the first time I took off out of there at night, I oh my gosh, it's it was so eye-opening without having any lights. And I thought, God, why would anybody ever do this without an instrument rating? You know, it's just unbelievable. Right. Yeah, complete black hole.
1: And the other thing that the report does show, and you know, if you delve into it, check it out at aapa.org and look for the Air Safety Institute, and you'll see the night flying report. Uh, other thing is that you know, when you think about it, Ian. We have modern utensils today at our fingertips to help avoid controlled flight into terrain. Mm-hmm. You know, CFIT. So there's still a pretty high incidence of that, yeah. especially at night. Yes. And I was just thinking um, a minute ago, and you know, when we talked a little bit about the NOTAM update a couple of episodes ago, and you know, a, a lot of the NOTAMS indicate unlit towers. Yeah. Towers that have light problems, and you really have to get from the top to the bottom of that list, if you're going to do a you know decent-sized cross-country. And flying into an unlit tower could still be an issue. Yeah. Flying into yes. a mountain uh, in the Mountain West, or even here on the East Coast in the Appalachians, is still an issue. Yeah. I remember flying up out of Asheville, North Carolina one time, and not only were, are, were there mountains and high terrain in the way, but all of a sudden clouds appeared out of nowhere. And that happens once the sun sets and the the ground cools a little bit. So these kind of things will will creep up and really play havoc with you, especially at night.
0: Yeah. So definitely, yeah, go check that out, AOPA.org, like you mentioned. You're going to be looking for the accident and incident analysis of night flying 2017 to 2021. You know, it's kind of a mouthful for a title, but it really is fascinating and talks about where those risks are. So it's worth a read. All right, David, moving on. This is some good news. We love to Share the good news coming out of Aero Medical. We talked a couple shows ago about how they are loosening some of the medications now for mental health issues, Right, and now there's news they've done it with another medication, so more progress there.
1: Yeah, and I didn't know much about this medication, but a, a lot of folks are taking it or have taken it, and this is good news for a lot of pilots. And, of course, we talked about Susan B. Northrup, and she is a real pilot. Mm-hmm. And she even vowed during last air venture to make some changes in the aeromedical community. It looks like that is happening. So, some uh, more of the aeromedical barriers have been removed. Yeah. Specifically, when we're talking about medications, we're looking at the agency approving the use of an antidepressant medication called Wellbutrin XL. Yep. Now there's a couple of versions of Wellbutrin. There's XL, I want to say. There's an SR, SR version too. SR as well, too. yeah, I think so. Yep. Yeah. So um, and the FAA reviewed about a decade's worth of data before removing the requirement for routine follow-up neurophysiological evaluations. I think that's significant yeah. too. Yep, yeah,
0: that's right. And
1: that that could save pilots about three thousand dollars a year in evaluation costs. Yep. Yeah. And again, now the key word is routine. Follow up. (laughs) That's right. Neurophysiological, okay. Neuropsychological evaluations, right? Yeah. And uh, there are other other updates too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we're basically talking about a new medication and this removal of the routine follow up neuropsych evals, which I guess means if you're, I I don't know the details of this one specifically. So definitely you need to, I think, call AOPA's medical team if this might impact you, but. I think the idea is if you are on a special issuance or you've used these medications in the past, now that they're approved, it's like you have to go through these. You know, if let's say you're stable, you have to go through these constant reevaluations. And it looks like maybe they're going to be removing some of those requirements, which is really nice.
1: Yeah, and the other thing uh, before we leave this subject, and I, again, I, need, I misspoke. If it's neuropsychological, as yeah. you pointed out, not neurophysiological. Another thing that is concerning to a lot of CFIs and, and also to the pilot community at large is a lot of younger people have been diagnosed early on with with some learning. I don't want to say disabilities, but some learning issues.
0: Yeah. ADD, ADHD right? Yep. right. Yep.
1: right. And so some of these medicines have been um, recommended for that, and that will, up till now, it has stifled a lot of mm-hmm. potential student pilots from joining the pilot community. Yes. So the list of those medications um, are, are changing as well. Yep. And there's a, a, a more evaluation going into that. I know there will be future changes. Uh, in fact, if you stay tuned to folks who are listening, if they stay tuned and look at the next AOPA pilot magazine, mm-hmm. there'll be some further clarifications on some of those medications as well.
0: Yeah, that's right. And we'll be right back. All right, David, let's talk about technology. So the Technum Twin, which is uh, having some success as a small commuter airplane, you may have missed this because in the sweep of other announcements about electric aviation, they also came up and said they were gonna. They were developing this thing. They were calling the the P Volt, uh-huh. which was an electric version of their commuter.
1: Twenty the P twenty twelve, which is kind of a big airplane. It's it fixed, is fixed gear twin engine high wing airplane.
0: Yep. So that program is now being. I don't want to say canceled, but they're calling it more or less shelved. And the reason I, I just I love the honesty and in, in their communication about this, they basically said it doesn't work. No. The technology's not there, will not work, too expensive, not enough endurance in the batteries, right. the life cycle costs are too high. Forget it.
1: And for folks who are unfamiliar with Technum, let's let's be advised. They just celebrated their seventy-fifth anniversary. This is a yeah a company that's been in business in Europe for three quarters of a century. And, you know, started as a family business as well. Mm-hmm. And they have – they do a lot of military contracts as well. They have a trainer model that we will be having reviewed soon as coming up in another issue of the APA magazine, mm-hmm. Pilot Magazine. But the P-2012 Traveler, which flies for Cape Air as a, as a commuter – now that was sort of their, their test bed to see how this would work you know, with these electric engines and the battery power. I like the honesty, like you said, the fact that financially it doesn't make sense because the battery packs were not large enough. They couldn't replace the fuel tanks. They uh, would not last long enough. To make electric airline service cost effective, mm-hmm. and for those reasons and others, they, like you said, they sh- they put the program on ice.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the more interesting things about this is we often talk about capacity, you know, about how the energy density of batteries isn't there uh-huh. with hydrocarbons yet. But what they were really focusing on here was life cycle costs. So because sure. batteries need this, you know, sort of constant replacement, that they were they were finding that for the type of mission you know, the Cape Air type mission that they were looking at, that uh, only after a few hundred flights, you'd have to totally replace the battery pack. So that's like like a TBO of like 500 hours on the engines. You know, I mean, it's just not feasible when you're talking about this in a commercial enterprise.
1: Right. And so as a potential flight school owner using electric aircraft or a potential commuter owner, you've got to look at the bottom dollar. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as much as we hate to say it, the power-to-weight ratio is still in favor of tra- traditional fuel, yeah. as, as far as uh, we know, right? Yep, yeah,
0: still not there, not to mention the uh, durability and, and everything else. But Cubcrafters thinks they might have a solution on something that's interesting in the electric realm.
1: So, yeah, on the other hand, when you're looking at power-to-weight and you're looking at the, the cycles of the batteries— you know, it all kind of points to the what's going on now in the EVTOL world, electric vertical takeoff and landing machines. And Cub Crafters unveiled an interesting concept. They patented this. Mm-hmm. It's a ducted fan leading edge slat, and this is really cool. Ian, yeah. a dozen small electric ducted fans blow over the cross, over and across the top of the wing. So what that does is, as you will remember, with Bernoulli's principle and things like that, the faster air moving over the top surface increases lift. They found by a factor of 1.5 to 4 times, depending on the flight profile. And so here, to me, is a cool thing as a TriPacer owner. I don't know (laughs) if this would ever get bolted on to a TriPacer. But the patented technology can possibly be added to existing airframes or incorporated at the factory. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's very cool. I mean, so imagine slats, you know, like you see coming off the front of a 737 wing or something like that, and then ducted fans kind of to that. And so, yeah, powering the air back over the wings with these high lift devices. And so it was interesting, you know, AvWeb had this story. And first of all, just from a geek standpoint, like CubCrafters, the video they produce—it's pretty cool because they've got this like orange smoke and they show it going through. Yeah, the you got to
1: check and... out, listeners. You got to check out the video. Yeah, it's cool. Definitely. And
0: so you kind of, you know, you read through the comments, and it's, it's, you know, people start to say, why would you put that sort of complexity in an airplane that can already land and you know a couple of feet and take off and a few more, and and then somebody chimes in and they're like, eVTOL. and and that's exactly. it. Exactly. I mean, that's all. That's exactly. what it's all about—to be able to take this, you know, proven existing airplane technology and adapt it. Yeah, yeah. It to these, you know, more urban environments.
1: It's sort of a real hybrid, potential real hybrid scenario that might make sense. Yeah. You know, you've already got a short takeoff and landing airplane, the Cubcrafter. And it, those are pretty cool airplanes. They're very powerful. Yeah. You know, and, and if you've ever flown a, a recent edition of one of those CubCrafters aircraft, the panel is amazing. Yeah. You know, incredible. so it's a, yeah. the airplane has a lot of Situational awareness too, and adding that to potentially m- more of a vertical takeoff and, and vertical landing that could, in fact, that technology could do something. If you yeah. add that to a, you know, this new technology, the ducted fan, a leading edge slat technology to an existing, we don't know what, you yeah. know, kind of right. aircraft could that's be, already out there, yeah, it
0: could be anything.
2: Yeah,
1: it would augment that, and all of a sudden, now you've got a, a viable potential. Product, so I've got a bit of advice uh, for myself. I'm gonna I'm gonna look at the stock market for Cub Crafters. That's all I'm saying.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you do remember they did have that IPO what, a couple did. months ago, yeah. And and they do some amazing stuff, and we know they're successful, in that backcountry is in huge demand right now. So that's that's not a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh huh. All right, let's finish up with the FAA reauthorization bill. It has passed out of committee in the House by a sixty-three to nothing vote which is pretty cool. And the most amazing thing about this, the, the, just the thing that we just have to say over and over and over again is how unique this bill is for general aviation. This is the first time ever that a subset, that GA as a specific subset has been called out in the bill. It has its own category. And there are, I think I counted, David, I think there are 64 or 65 provisions that will help general aviation in this bill.
1: Well, you did some great homework on that, Ian. I commend you for it. And, you know, a couple of episodes ago, we mentioned it, that also this is a bipartisan bill. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, voted on. Right, right. And then uh, uh, Chairman Representative Sam Graves, Republican from Missouri. He also was key to getting some of these measures, you know, put into that bill, as well as Representative Dick Larson, a Democrat from Washington state. And it's interesting because the bill will make the sky safer all around for everyone. It strengthens the economy at the same time, mm-hmm. and it invests in the aviation workforce. And those are three pillars that you just got to love.
0: Yep. So this is the the whole backbone of this is the FAA reauthorization, which has to be passed every five years. By
1: September this
0: year, if yep. I'm not yep. mistaken. That's right, to fund the FAA. And so it's a great opportunity for groups like AOPA to get in there, work with staff on the bill, and get what we think are the most important priorities for aviation into it. So um, let's start right at the top. One thing that's in there that is so exciting is the unleaded fuel transition. We know about this. We talked about it many times. We know that there's problems in California, there were potential problems in Washington, this bill would take care of those and basically say that if you sell 100 low lead, you need to continue to do that until 2030 or until a viable replacement is in the fleet.
1: That's good news for unleaded. Another uh, provision for this reauthorization act would be changes to basic med, changes in the right direction for this. So the legislation would potentially expand basic med privileges by increasing the number of allowable passengers from 5 to 6 and increasing the number of seats in an aircraft from 6 to 7, i.e. a Cherokee 6, which could have 6 or 7, or Saratoga, that whole line. You could have 6 seats or 7 seats, and now you can can take another passenger and have additional seats. It also would increase the aircraft having a useful load now of 6,000 pounds, moving that up to 12,000. 500 pounds. So does that mean- Yeah, that's
0: significant.
1: Yeah, like there are some big iron airplanes that would now, pilots could be able to use basic med with that. Yeah. The other thing that I think this is key to that basic med drive is is having DPEs be able to fly under basic med Mm -hmm. and administer a practical test or proficiency check. Because there is a huge shortage Shortage. of DPEs right now.
0: Exactly. Also, don't forget to try and facilitate basic men in Canada, which is something that we have been working on. Oh, you're right, Ian. Absolutely.
1: We've been working on that ever since uh, the bill was signed into law. Yeah, that's
0: right. So, again, we just talked about the FAA medical process uh, a couple stories ago. So, some more in this bill to address that. It would establish an aviation medical working group that must work with the FAA to review and improve the medical processes and policies to make more timely and efficient certification to pilots, has to address the special issuance process, has to expand the list of medications that's appropriate, evaluate certain medications and treatments, Address ADD, ADHD, like you mentioned, and mental health processes. Right. And review colorblindness and all sorts of other things for pilots.
1: That's interesting about the colorblindness test. We kind of, uh, because maybe updating that, I don't know, maybe we can use some type of VR technology. Apple just came out with a big announcement about a week or so ago. Yeah. I'm not saying that we need to fly underneath those uh, Apple, Apple glasses because the, the, you can't really see out, but something that would adapt you know, a different type of task or a different type of vision to a lot of folks who have red and green color blindness. It's, it's quite a big pool of folks who could potentially be pilots. Yep, absolutely. So moving on, another key part of this reauthorization bill would be to protect GA airports by increasing funding from the current $670 million to $1 billion per year. And 170 million bucks over five years will be pegged to address the nationwide shortage of GA hangers. Yes, I, th- I think that's Big. good news. Now, the hang- hangers that we're talking about—hangers under 5,000 square yeah. feet—we're not talking about T-hangers. community hangers or gang hangers. We're talking about T hangers. Yep, and that's a known problem here at Frederick and elsewhere.
0: All over the country. Yep. Absolutely. And also in that, you know, we've talked a lot about FBO fees, of course, and that there we think that there should be a fee-free area on the airport that you can park, go through the fence, you know, just pick up a passenger and leave if that's all you need to do. So this would provide $34 million a year to build those transient ramps. right? And also there's a provision that they must be labeled as such on airport diagrams. Clearly labeled.
1: Yeah. Okay. As we have to come, to, we have to come to terms on what what the clear label will be. What it would look
0: like. That is right. right. Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> I'll take the. I'll take the next one, and you can. Uh, we got a few more to yeah. go through. Folks who are listening. The NCAA, the other NCAA, as I like to say, this is a workforce <laughs> development part of the bill. It establishes the National Center for the Advancement of Aerospace, hence NCAA, and this is all into increase aviation and aerospace STEM curriculum for students, which would hopefully entice them into aerospace and aviation careers, Mm -hmm. Uh, would facilitate aviation workforce development, like we just said, provide a critical forum for cross-disciplinary collaboration. For instance, maybe the folks who are trying to get the ducted air over the wings of the Cub Crafters could get together with some future people mover type device that kind of puts puts them in the same path. It requires the FAA to partner with the NCAA to establish a high-quality web-based resource center and streamlining public access to this type of information on careers.
0: Yep. This is an easy one. Everybody can cheer it. LODA, four-letter word, as we know, it would fix the problem. This bill would fix the problem, would reverse the interpretation from the FAA, and dictate that a flight instructor, owner, lesser, lessee of a covered airplane, won't be required to obtain a LODA to conduct or receive flight training in the aircraft.
1: And the last one I'm going to mention right now, there might be other things we'll talk about in the future, but Ian, airman and aircraft registration. Oh boy, this has got to reduce, hopefully reduce the time and processing from, in my case, almost four months to no later than 10 business days after receipt of an application. Now, that is, that's a pretty stout improvement that we're looking at. But also, a couple other provisions in this would really make sense. It allows an aircraft owner to operate that aircraft on or after the expiration date if the operator has the, the paperwork aboard mm-hmm. the aircraft. And shows that it had a validating submitted renewal form, basically a copy, even though it hasn't yet been approved or denied. And make sure that the aircraft's airworthiness certificate is compliant. So that's another key thing. So if you're buying an aircraft and it's been stored in a hangar, I'm not sure if that airworthiness certificate still applies. So make double sure you check that or call our legal team to find out more. But reducing that time from months and months and months to 10 days, I think is a step, a huge step in the right direction, Ian.
0: Yeah, totally agree. So we're gonna talk about this a lot more as it goes through because all these provisions you know, will positively impact pilots and we want you to be up to date on what will eventually pass. As we know, it's a messy process. This is kind of the beginning. The Senate's working on their own version. We'll see what's in that. And hopefully, as you said, These will be
1: heard on the floor in the summer and then passed out by uh, September. Right, right, sounds good. I'll keep my ear to the the ground, waiting on that, and I'm gonna be hopefully optimistic.
0: Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Okay, so we wanna bring on Stephanie and Jared. Again, the Freedom Aviation Network, this is a, a group that they have created to help victims of human trafficking, and it's a way you can get involved as a pilot.
3: Hello, I'm here with Jared Miller and Stephanie Lamar, co-founders of Freedom Aviation Network, which is an organization that's using pilots to help fight human trafficking. Jared and Stephanie, welcome to Hangar Talk.
4: Thank you for having us. We're excited to be here today.
3: Why don't you start by telling us how you got interested in aviation and then further how the two of you guys met?
2: I started flying when I was 22 and so I had my own plane and really enjoyed just flying for fun. Uh, and then I had children, so I took about 15 years off, and then I started back three years ago and became a CFII. I was teaching, and currently I fly for a regional.
4: So I got into private aviation three years ago when I was the COO of an anti-trafficking agency that is global, and I recognized that there was no solid solution for, or there's no, there was just no safe, efficient rapid transportation solution for survivors of human trafficking globally and i was getting very frustrated with this and and covid hit and i said well now i guess is a great time to go and get my private pilot license while i have a little bit more free time so i actually went out in 2020 to become a private pilot to figure out if general aviation if private aviation could be a solution and then that ties in. So so Stephanie and I, we met about 12 or 13 years ago. I was her son's swim team coach. And so that's how we originally met. And we just stayed connected on Facebook throughout the years. And then she, in the summer of 2020, she saw that I was becoming a private pilot and she was working as a CFI. And so she reached out to say, how can I help you? And then we, we started just unpacking the different layers of, of what was going on with me. And she was working with a, a local agency that, that works with at-risk communities here in Nashville, Tennessee. And we actually helped her and her agency bring back a girl who was trafficked, one of their clients kind of. And, and so one thing led to another and we started working on Freedom Aviation Network together in 2020 through all of that.
3: Sounds like both the aviation and the volunteer aspects were really integral to both of you guys. Can you speak a little bit more to the origins of the organization, how you really got in there and started this?
2: Yeah. So Jared had mentioned about how he was trying to solve this issue with general aviation, and I just thought a volunteer pilot organization would work. So initially, uh, Joe Creasy and I became volunteers of Rescue One Global, which was where he was working at the time. And so we were just going to handle their cases of transportation with just the two of us. And so that's how it started. And we were doing some flights for them. But as he went on a sabbatical, I started reaching out to other women who were interested in helping women in flight. And I realized there was a very strong backing from the aviation community that they wanted to do this and so i reached out to him like you know what (laughs) we need to get started with this and so we did meet with some people in the vpo organizations like angel flight and thinking they might be able to just kind of take us on like well can you just handle these cases and they really felt that it was too much and this need to be its own separate thing but they really helped us along the way in getting started so we went ahead and became our own nonprofit. We thought we would do a few flights, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the organizations we were working with were just a couple. And they didn't say they needed us that much, you know, three to five times a year. But within a few months, we'd already done 25 flights. And it has just grown really fast from there.
4: Yeah. And I'd say from, you know, from my perspective, mm-hmm. so, and I actually think I kept this to myself in 2020 when I was going out mm-hmm. to become a private pilot and we were talking about, how can we do this? We, we started putting it under Rescue One. But I think what I kept to myself back then was, back then I was, I was already knowing that this couldn't last and it couldn't grow as something underneath a case management agency for anti-human trafficking. It needed to be a standalone organization that bridged the worlds of aviation and and anti-trafficking together. But I put that on the back burner because who had time for that? I mean, the world was shut down. We were trying to figure this out. We needed to spend a lot of time figuring out how this works. And so we, we worked on this under rescue one for, for two years. And then like Stephanie said, I I actually took a three month sabbatical, a three month break last summer of the summer of 2022. And when she reached out and said, hey, I have I have aviators now calling in saying, how can I how can I be involved? And I we just looked at each other and we said, well, are you ready to are you ready to do this? Like, I mean, I guess it's time. Like, let's let's do it. So I finished my sabbatical, came back. We built the business plan. We met with Joe Creasy. Like we said, he's the leader of Nashville's IMC club. And then we we did go around to the different some different VPOs to talk about this. But we incorporated in September of 2022. And like Stephanie said, since then, we've actually conducted, as of this week, we've conducted 42 flights since September, which is just amazing. And and she made one point that I wanted to comment on. The anti-trafficking agencies, they know that transportation is a barrier. They do know that. But their response globally is we have to do what we can do to get these people. We have to do whatever it takes to get these people to where they need to go, to shelter, to safety, to a different shelter, to court appointments, to visit their family for the first time in years, to reunite with their, their kids for the first time in years. All these different things are a part of your restoration life cycle, as I call it, post coming out of your situation and and there's no and everyone knows that there's no solid solution but no one has any hope for a solution globally there let's just put them on a bus let's put them on a train or let's put them on an air, airplane if we can afford it and hope for the best and so what we're saying is we want to take out the hope for the best and we want to give them the best <laughs> we, we want to give them the best opportunity to be able to get out of their situation safely efficiently and rapidly
3: absolutely and you mentioned building a business plan Coming out of Rescue One and establishing this as its own entity, how do you how do you develop that sort of business plan? What goes into that? And were previous organizations helped to you?
4: No, that's a great question. So I I built the model for the business plan based off of really specifically Angel Flight as a whole. I mean, Angel Flight's a big organization, we know that, with different with different sections across the country, but we we were mentored by Angel Flight SOARs in the southeast half of uh, Freedom Aviation's, Freedom Aviation Network's model is part, you know, standard VPO that's been around for a long time. So like the angel flights were the good ones to look to. And then part of it on the human trafficking side or the anti-trafficking side, there are are organizations that have referral networks for services on the anti-trafficking side. One of them specifically is called the National Trafficking Shelter Alliance. And they were the other half of this kind of business model was, they are, they're a referral network for shelters. So essentially what we're creating is a referral network for transportation. And so we just kind of mixed those two together. So from the from the transportation or from the aviation side, Angel Flight Source and Janine, the executive director over at Angel Flight Source, she met, she gave us a lot of time and a lot of resources Chris from the Air Care Alliance has been incredible. The whole Air Care Alliance has been amazing and been completely supportive from this from the beginning. Another one, another specific agency in the beginning on the aviation side was South Wings, who they perform environmental flights. And they were just instrumental in helping us with our onboarding process, figuring out how do you vet pilots? How do you, how do you work through the paperwork to get people onboarded? So I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but those are the people that, that really helped to mentor us from, from that perspective.
2: And we've done a good job of putting the two things together because um, we have heard from some people who are trying to do this, but they're not really working with case management agencies. It was important to us that we didn't become a case management agency. So we don't want to take a survivor and go, well, you have to go here or let's find a placement for you. We're kind of staying out of that. So somebody else needs to come up with that placement. So we're working with the agencies. So we are just transportation. We always transport a survivor with their advocate. They're never traveling alone. And also that keeps the pilot from being at risk of being with this person alone and or getting somewhere and there's nobody on the other side to pick them up or, you know, so we're trying to keep the pilots um, away from that feeling of, okay, now I'm responsible for this person uh, that is never the case, so they're always with an agent.
3: Thank you. And can you speak a little bit more to that and what the flight looks like itself? You mentioned they're always traveling with an advocate. What sort of distances are you guys traveling with these people? What can people expect uh, during the flight?
2: Yeah, so it's a little different. I've done a lot of these flights. Um, right now we're running about 50-50, so half of our flights are a nice, doable distance for somebody in a smaller aircraft. Um, we're looking at 200, 250 miles. And that would be one way, but most pilots come back. So we'll take the uh, the, uh, survivor with their advocate. We take them where they need to go, drop them off, and then we come back usually with the advocate and drop them back off at home. And that's usually our cases. If If we have a contact, we don't have a website where you can go see all of our flights, we actually email. So if we have a flight in the Nashville area, we'll email all of our Nashville pilots and say, look, here's the flight. It's on this and this day, you know, give them all the pertinent information. If they want to take that flight, then they'll respond back. That's just for the safety of our survivors. We don't want anything out there that can be hackable that they can look into. The other half of our flights are long distance. In fact, we have a flight going on today from Minnesota to California. And so they're just longer. A lot of times we're buying tickets for those, but because survivors often don't have identification, that can sometimes be difficult. So we are going to have to partner with maybe some charter organizations and other things to handle some of these bigger flights.
4: I would add to that last portion and say because the nature because the nature of what we do is is very different than other VPOs, in the sense that the people that we are transporting have significantly, usually, usually significantly more trauma. I'm not I'm not making a blanket statement for everyone, but I'm, but I am saying if you're if you're one of our passengers, you've you have experienced trauma. We are we are trying to limit the amount of transfers that you have throughout the day. We're also trying to limit the amount of time that you spend traveling throughout the day. So we we don't want to have you know multiple legs either, which is is the way that a lot of VPOs have to operate. You you know you have your your smaller aircraft do multiple legs. So when we do a long haul flight, we are looking at the overall experience for the passenger because that. If you've just come out of your situation and you're already stressed and having to go between new pilot after new pilot after new plane after new plane throughout the day, and you know that becomes a ten hour day, that's just that's really hard on you. And we're we're trying to reduce that. So we also, like Stephanie was saying, though, we run into other barriers like identification. A lot of people do have access to some sort of copy of an old ID, or maybe they have a social security card that they can access somehow through maybe a family member or whatever we've been able to work often within Tsa's requirements for forgotten ID but sometimes it's not possible and we've had to have situations where the char- where a charter flight was the only option like we've even we've even looked and helped agencies look into chartering a bus or whatever like we've done, All the research to try to eliminate the transportation barrier. And there have been times when a charter was the only option. And we're we're allowed to receive donations from 135s. You know, a 135 charter company can donate an empty leg flight to us and and receive a tax credit and all that kind of stuff, and and some good PR that they're doing something good, you know. And, And we do want them, we want charter companies to understand that you have a place in this too. We love jet owners. To understand you have a place in this because what what we are doing is a little bit different and we do have probably significantly more long-haul flights than other groups do too. And the reason is if you have been, let's say you were trafficked in Nashville, for your own sake, the best thing for you is to get as far away from this as possible, from the city as possible. And a lot of survivors know that inherently. They know that they'll just get roped back into it if they're nearby even if they're in a safe place, even if they're three hours away, their old life is right down the road. And there was a lot of things exciting about that life. There's a lot of things that were very addicting in that life. There are a lot of things that draw you back. And if you're within a close proximity, easy enough to get back into it, you might really get back into it. And there's a statistic that says, and, and I could probably find the, there's, there's, this is a general statistic that you can find pretty easily available online, but on average about six or seven times a survivor of human trafficking will go back to their situation before they actually get out of it once and for all. But we think that we can decrease that average by giving them the opportunity to get as far away from that situation as possible. And it's always their choice. If they don't want to go from Nashville to California, let's say, to go to a shelter out in California, they don't have to. It's just now they have the choice to be able to make that decision for themselves. So we're looking for all people. That's really what we're saying. We're looking for Private pilots with smaller aircraft, we're looking for private pilots with the biggest aircrafts you have. We're looking for 135s. And we're also, we are, I mean, a big part of this is we are we are needing um, the ability to purchase airline tickets as well as, as as we can. Sometimes that's a fine and appropriate option. Sometimes, like we've had situations where we've purchased airline tickets for, we purchased one for a woman who was who had graduated her program and she was now able to restart her life somewhere else outside of that program. So she's she's stable. She's not a flight risk. She's not security like no one's coming after her. She's been out of her situation for a long time. She just went through a, you know a restoration program, and that's a that's a very wonderful time for us to you know put her on an airline ticket and and get her to where she needs to go. So
2: the other thing that is a little different about us is our flights tend to happen last minute. So mm-hmm. um, a week is about average. So we don't have flights booked out a month ahead of time. Uh, and sometimes as little as 24 hours notice, but usually we have about a week. If I understand correctly, you guys
3: were mentioning that, I mean, what your organization is doing is fighting the fact that trafficking is a, I mean, transportation, sorry, is a a barrier to exiting a trafficking situation, but it can also be a trauma. I know in speaking to Stephanie in our previous conversations mentioned that uh, a lot of people enter human trafficking through transportation, Uh, How did you guys prepare yourselves for that? And how do you prepare your volunteers to address those sorts of sensitive topics?
2: Yeah, so that's one of the reasons why we try to reduce the trauma in the transportation. One, they always get to go with their advocate. That's usually somebody that they already know. And that person is already trained to help them with those situations. The other thing is that we're not just buying them a bus ticket and saying, good luck, Mm -hmm. and sending them off on their own. We really are trying to find and alleviate this issue by putting them on something that's quicker. Like our flight today, we had several options, but we chose a direct flight, the quickest one she could get on, you know, and just just trying to alleviate some of those issues of sitting around an airport or being worried about things. If they're coming to a small airport to get on a plane, you know, they're again, they're with their advocate. Often as a pilot, I try to talk to them like I would any passenger as pilots do, and tell them what the flight is going to be like, you know, every time I take a new passenger, it's like, okay, these are the kind of things you're going to be sensing up there. It's kind of like a boat's going to rock a little bit, you know, these kinds of things. And I I let them know what's going on. Okay, once we get above these clouds, it's going to be nice and smooth and things like this, just to make them um, enjoy it. But I find that a lot of the women love flying on these little airplanes. It's very freeing to be trapped in a situation and they get on a plane, you're above it all. You're getting somewhere safe. Uh, We have had some women tell us, look, if you can't get us out today, I'm not leaving because it's just too much of a risk for them to try and go and not get where they need to be. So it has been, I think, very helpful. And we've had a lot of positive feedback.
4: Her point of having the advocate on board, though, is the greatest way to um, mitigate the trauma-informed care to provide trauma-informed care for this. We we are working on programs to train our pilots because we do think that the pilots should have should have a good amount of understanding of what what to say, what not to say to survivors, what's an inappropriate joke that would be fine in your normal life that maybe you shouldn't say on the radio, you know, in front of them or, you know, and uh, what I say, so we have the advocate on board, but we also do an onboarding call with every single pilot. So we have a personal onboarding call. We're going to move that actually to a group webinar, but at least we'll still have an interaction with real people and be able to talk through some of this stuff. But what I say to our pilots, especially the male pilots, because because primarily we have majority of our pilots are male what i say is you might be the first safe male this person has ever met or has met in several years so your job really is to defer to the advocate all day long in in the regular communications outside of safety briefing and flying the aircraft and making sure that you're you are responsible for the safety and the FAAR, you know FAA FAR regulations for flying this flight but the advocate is responsible for taking care of that survivor. And I also tell them sometimes, like, if you notice that the advocate or the survivor isn't looking you in the eye, or they're not answering your questions, that's okay. Don't take it personally. It's not personal. So we do a little bit of coaching and the onboarding calls, but we are working on a more, a little bit more robust program just so that pilots can have a better understanding of the background of what some of these people might be going through to be able to mitigate some of that as well.
3: And I understand you guys are right now based out of the Nashville area, uh, but looking to expand and have some pilots across the United States. Uh, Can you talk about your plans for this expansion
2: and what you guys have in the works? Yeah, so we started in Nashville and about 250 nautical miles around that. And we found, you know, that was great when we were starting, but we're already getting calls from Florida. We've had three calls from Texas. We've had some from Philadelphia, today from Minnesota. Um, It just doesn't stop. So we decided we really need to get pilots from across the nation, unlike some of the angel flights and whatever, the National Shelter Alliance is nationwide. So we are going to have to be nationwide because this is where they're transporting to and from. And so as we get, you know, five to 10 pilots in an area, we'll let the sheltered alliance know, hey, we can be open in this area. And so we've kind of been basing it off of pilot interest. I think we're gonna be ready to do the East Coast here really soon. We've had a lot of pilots um on board from Maryland area, Florida, Ohio,
4: Georgia, Georgia Alabama. Florida, Florida. I mean we have we <laughs> have fifty-five pilots on boarded in sixteen states at this point. Yeah. And the and the truth is we're not we're not advertising to case management agencies. This is all word of mouth. What's we're the the cases are coming from is, is primarily word of mouth. Part of that is because I have a reputation in this industry. I've been in it for a while. So people do know who I am. But the other part is whenever you're a case management agency who uses us for the first time, you get really excited about this and you tell your friends and that gets around and we've, you know, we've already been added actually fan. This is big news to be honest, fan has been added as an advisor to Department of Homeland Security Blue Lightning Initiative. And we're actually on a webinar next week talking about safety and general aviation and general aviation and human trafficking, and which is, I'll send you that link so that you can have it if you want. But but my point is, all of that has happened word of mouth. The The demand for what we're doing is so incalculable. And I know that if there's an accountant listening to this right now, they're going to be so frustrated by that statement. But we don't know how many people are actually coming out of human trafficking every single year. What we know is that in the US alone there's about 150,000 known victims estimated. 150,000 estimated victims of human trafficking in the US alone and that doesn't include globally which it's a, you know, in the millions, billions of dollars and and people and and it's 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 so bad, but you but the, to math it all out and to figure out how many people actually are coming out of their situation? How many people actually need transportation? It's it's impossible. And it's so much that, you know, we could get swamped. If we started advertising to case management agencies, we would just be swamped with demand. We like to say, we, we, since the beginning, we feel like we're putting our finger on the dam. And the, if we took our finger out, the dam would just explode on us. So we are focused on pilot recruiting. And from pilot recruiting and, and getting pilots onboarded, we know now that we have an array of pilots across the country, and we need more, and we need a more diverse range of aircraft across, across the country. We need a, a more diverse range of aviation options. And, and from that, though, we can meet the word-of-mouth demand that's already pretty significant. And we can start telling some agencies, hey, we have a cluster up in New England that we could, we could actually help you now. We have about 20, let's, let's say, you know, we get to a place where we have 20 pilots in the New England area. Well, we can start going to these agencies and say, hey, you can, you can start calling us now regularly. You know, we can start advertising it a little bit more, but we have to do it piece by piece or else we'll be totally swamped. By the way, this is an exciting statement. You know, it's like, it's we are building, something is happening here. And we're asking everyone who's listening to this right now, the aviators, we're asking you to get on the ground floor of something that is a, a first-time solution to a global problem that even the Department of Homeland Security wants. You know what I mean? Like, it's like these people are wanting this. It's real. It's happening. No one has done this before and you have an opportunity to get involved in something on the ground floor we just ask for a little bit of patience we don't know if if we have a if we have a pilot show up in toledo i, I can't guarantee that you're going to get a flight in the next 6 months i don't i don't want to guarantee that you get a flight in the next 6 months i would love if you didn't have a flight in the next 6 months cuz that means someone didn't necessarily need our help there which is a good thing in a way so we are we also asking our pilots to have a little bit of patience, because you may not get a case for a while, or you may get three cases in the same week. You know, I mean, we've had three requests just in the last four days that we've been working on. So
2: Yeah, when I talk to my Minnesota guys, like, do you even have cases up here? And then we call them two days later. later. (laughs) Like, we need you, and you're our only pilot in Minnesota. So that's just how it
4: goes. Yeah, I I do disaster. My my background is disaster management, emergency management, and I'm on a bunch of disaster response teams globally. I probably get called four times a year, and I think about our pilots, and I and I think, you know, I'm not I'm not sitting there thinking, oh, is this disaster response agency forgetting about me. I'm thinking, you know, when they call me this four times a year, that's when they really need help. And and so like, I, I kind of look at it the same way. And I, and I think, you know, our pilots, we're trying to get you onboarded. We want to get you onboarded. And then you'll get our newsletter, you'll get our updates. And then when we have a request, you'll get that request. But in the meantime, if you don't hear from us, it doesn't mean we're not doing anything. It means we just don't have anything in your area because we are only sending notifications to the pilots in the area where we need the help.
3: So how can people get involved? First, maybe how where can they find you? But then how can they get involved? And who are you looking for to get involved?
4: Well, I'll, I'll start with the how How can they get involved? We have virtually infinite opportunities to get involved. We're, we're starting a business. We're running a business. So there's lots of different ways. So, so we, we need more help than just volunteer pilots. We also need people who can help administratively we need people who can help with onboarding calls with pilots, who can help process onboarding paperwork, who can um, help with flight coordination. We have times when we need help with ground transportation. There are times when we when we take on helping someone get to an airport if with a with an advocate if that's appropriate, if that's something that we can do. We also are building a go bag program. Where it's it's very similar to a concept from angel flight where they have bags that, gift bags that they'll give to their passengers who are going with like a warm blanket, different things like that. For us we're we're providing transportation to people who probably haven't had any sort of hygiene access or good hygiene access in a while. so we're we're putting in comfort blankets, fidget toys, sunglasses, things to make their ride comfortable, but we're also putting in, Hygiene products. We're putting in feminine products in the female bags. We're putting in other hygiene products in the male bags. We're putting in a barf bag too, just in case. Uh, we're putting in snacks and we're trying to keep it under five pounds, by the way. <laughs> we're putting in small things. We're very cognizant of weight, but that's a program that I want to expand nationally as well. Because um, right now that program is only in, in Middle Tennessee. So I'd like to have pockets of places around the country that are creating these go bags for us. We have a whole list of that. So, so there, you know, we need tech help. We want to be very technologically well founded because this organization is going to scale. And I don't want to transfer systems five times in the next five years, you know. I want to make sure that we're we're growing well now and scaling into good tech. We also need major social media help and marketing help, to be honest. It's it's not social media is neither of our skill set. It's <laughs> it's not really anything that either of us haven't, you know, heaven's to Betsy, I say this, but, you know, we don't particularly care that much about social media, but we know that that's a powerful tool. It's not that social media shouldn't exist. It's that we, we're we just not. That's our skill set. And so we need help with that, too.
2: Uh, social so. media is difficult for us because we do ask the pilots not to post pictures. Right. Just the nature of what we're doing. We don't want these survivors being found. We don't want tail numbers. We don't want pictures of them. So unlike Angel Flight or the Pilots and Paws, you know, everybody loves the cute little doggies and that brings a lot of social media. We can't really do that. So it's trying to find ways to promote without doing that. You know, Mm -hmm. we don't want to do those types of things.
4: It would be a very wonderful project for a creative social media expert (laughs) out there. I'm just saying. It would be very fun. (laughs) Um, We also, you know, legal help, compliance help, all those different things. So you want to tell them about how to find us?
2: Yeah, they can go to the website. It's probably one of the easier ways, freedomaviationnetwork.org. And then we are on Facebook and Instagram if they search for Freedom Oh, yeah. look at you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, those are ways they can find us. And then they just can send us a form. Once they send the form, they'll get a response back and they can either sign up for a phone call or now we're going to try to do a Zoom webinar at least once a month. So they can join that if they'd rather and then get them onboarded that way. We have been talking to almost everyone. Another thing you didn't mention, I'm trying to get a point person in every Mm -hmm. state. So right now we have a point person, Art Bridge out in Oregon. Uh, We have Carl Gashler out in Phoenix. We have Greg down in Atlanta. So we're getting some people in every state because like Angel Flight works in a section for a reason. They know the Southeast. They don't necessarily know the mountains in the West. And neither do we. So it's like you're taking on the flight, but you know your area better than I do. So if I send you this flight, you're going to know which airports are good to go to and that kind of thing, or know your own local group of pilots. So like our out in Oregon, he's onboarding his own pilot so he can talk to them and he knows who he has in his network. That way, if we get a flight out there, we can contact him and say, this is what we're working with. Can you help us do this flight? So that would be helpful in more states if people want to step up and say, all right, I'll handle my state. And uh, that would be helpful to us is just taking off some of that workload.
3: Definitely have people to lean on when you're looking at, you know, even time zones and things like that.
2: Yeah. We've had a few call missteps because of time zones Mm -hmm. already. (laughs) Well, I do want to give
3: you guys a chance. Uh, That's all my questions for today, but I want to open it up in case I didn't touch on anything or if you guys want to, you know, have any final thoughts or
2: pushes for your organization. I really would like to thank all the pilots who already signed up. I mean, from the article, we've had such a huge response. And I get to do a lot of the onboarding calls and talking to people one-on-one. They're very, very responsive to what we're trying to do and very helpful. And most of the pilots, it's been word of mouth to get other pilots. And so being very, very helpful to us, very patient that we've been so new. So that's been really nice.
4: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would just say reach out, you know, if this is, if this piques your interest at all, re- just reach out and have a conversation on our website freedomaviationnetwork.org, there's a button called take action and you have three options when you click on take action when you get to that page the first one is pilot volunteer and in- interest the second one is volunteer interest so that's anyone who's not going to be a pilot. And then third one is is donations. We are, we are raising money. We do, we do need finances to be able to support this. So we are asking people to help support us that way. So those three areas are where you can go. And the first two lead you to a form. So you have a pilot interest form that you fill out and we we get that and you receive an email pretty quickly that says, Here are your next steps. And your next step really is to sign up for a, an onboarding call with us. And then you do your onboarding call, and then after your onboarding call, we send you a few more next steps. Not many. We we send you information about filling out our full onboarding packet uh, with all of your information, uploading your appropriate documents. We do have all of our pilots sign a non. We have all of our volunteers sign a non-disclosure form that says you aren't going to disclose anything identifiable about about our cases or our business or the or the. Survivors, we want to guarantee we want to guarantee as close as we possibly can that we're going to protect the anonymity of these people as much as we can. So all that comes to you after that. Then you you fill in your documents, you submit everything, and then we work through to just double check it all, and then approve you, and and you receive an email that you're on on the roster with the volunteer form. It's a little less automated. Everyone has a different reason for filling out that auto, that volunteer form. So usually what we do is we receive those volunteer forms and then we, we just schedule a phone call and hear more about how someone would like to be involved. We're not going to force anyone to do a particular task. A volunteer, it, what, what is helpful to us is for volunteers to come to us to say, hey, this is something that I can do and this is how I can do it. And then we, we plug them in. So if, if any volunteers heard this today and they want to be involved, that's a great way to do it. And then the donations forms pretty straightforward. So we'd love to have you. We're very excited about what we're building. We believe that we have a very strong foundation already, but it takes a village to be able to continue to do this. So we are looking for people across the country to help support us. Uh, we really do need help. And, and I do genuinely, greatly believe that this organization is going places. I think that we are we are confronting a and, and, and eliminating a very significant barrier that I know personally, you know? And so I'm I'm just asking you all to really get excited about about supporting that and being involved in it. We'd love to have you.
3: Thank you guys are doing great work and I'm so excited to see where it goes. Stephanie and Jared, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about Freedom Aviation Network today.
4: Yeah, thank you so much for having us.
3: Yeah, thank you.
0: So David, out of all the things that I hear people doing with airplanes, humanitarian relief ways, you know, dogs, medical flights, environmental, I mean, there's all sorts of ways you can do disaster relief. This one, I don't know, it really spoke to me and it's because GA is such a unique tool for people in this situation that I just, it's just a fantastic idea and I love how their passions were brought together to create something that can really help people.
1: Absolutely, helping other folks in the world is what GA is all about. We've seen it, as you mentioned, during natural disasters and other times. But this really will help humanity out, and in general, and it's great. I really like the how they got together. You know, he was uh, her son's swim coach. They started talking about aviation, and before you know it, they had some commonality. So more power to them.
0: Very cool. All right, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen.
1: And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk or wherever you find your podcasts. All right, we'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hanger talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.